Now it's time for the reading and preaching of God's word. Our scripture will be read this morning by Patience, and the sermon will be delivered by our senior pastor, the Reverend Dan MacDonald. Today's reading is taken from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're continuing our series on Mark, and we are glad that you have joined us. Uh, when I was about 12 in junior high, a bunch of uh, guys, I think on our hockey team, I think that's the group that went, we went on a canoe trip. Uh, we had a few adults as leaders. It was my first time on an actual overnight canoe trip. And we were paddling down a river with a medium light current. I was terrible at canoeing, so they stuck me in the front where I'd have the least amount of damage to the team. But we were paddling down a river. We were in the, the front canoe of about four or five canoes. And suddenly we got a shout from the canoe behind us. The canoe behind us said, pull up, something's happened. And when we looked back, turned the canoe around, we could see off upriver a little bit, a canoe looked like it had been capsized. So we started paddling. Well, what had seemed like an easy current that we were drifting down suddenly became an enormous obstacle. We paddled and we paddled and we made such little headway and we were getting tired and the people's snarky remarks about my lack of paddling became angry objections and insults to me because I was weighing the team down. Finally exhausted, we got partway back upstream and an experienced canoeist had pulled off where he saw a beach and they kind of guided the capsized canoe there and we all went there and I just fell down on the earth completely winded. Later, when we got back into the canoe, I got switched to right beside the adult in the back. And as we began to go, he turned to me, leaned down and said, Danny, they called me Danny back then, Danny, this is why we tried to teach you how to paddle. It's fine to paddle poorly when you're going with the current, but when you have to paddle upstream, you really need to know what you're doing. 
We've come to a passage of Scripture that I submit to you is a place where Jesus directly cuts against the current of our culture and his and calls his people to turn around and paddle upstream. Here, in this encounter with highly religious people who, despite their religiosity, have a view of marriage that in many ways is strikingly, strikingly similar to our own, Jesus has something to say to them and to us. It's startling, and it's very, very challenging, and it's this. You don't get to organize and order and dissolve marriage the way you want to. I do. I created you. I created marriage for a purpose. And marriage should be run, organized, architected, and ordered the way I have architected it. Now, this is a sermon, not a seminar. So I'm not going to explain every permutation of the Christian view of marriage. That would take forever. I I have a 118-page research paper by my denomination available to you. Just email me, and you can have that. This is a sermon. But what we need to do now is sit beside Jesus in this moment, in the context Mark gives us, and learn two things from him. First, marriage as we have made it, and secondly, marriage as God has meant it. Marriage as we have made it, and marriage as God has meant it. Firstly, marriage as we have made it. You see it in the beginning when the Pharisees come up. They're clearly trying to test Jesus. It says so. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're hoping to catch him disagreeing with Moses, the great lawgiver. And in fact, he turns the tables on them and says, well, what did Moses command you? Savvy man, that Jesus. And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send his wife away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you that commandment. So here we are. A jousting ceremony is going on. He has asked them, what is Moses' command? They've said, well, Moses allowed. (laughs) Hear those words. And they're exactly correct, by the way. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses set some stipulations to to allow divorce in certain circumstances with certain parameters and protections. A man could write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away if certain requirements were there. In, in the Hebrew, it's called indecency. Most scholars think it's some form of real sexual infidelity, but it's a little bit murky. And if that certificate of divorce is, if that divorce is granted, a certificate has to be produced, given to the woman so that she is now free from the marriage just as he is. Because in those days, in the patriarchal society, women could be abused and exploited. This was protection for her. And in giving this explicit protection and these parameters and restrictions, it was both a progressive piece of legislation for its day, really protecting women, but it was also a restrictive piece of legislation on the patriarchal elites in the society who were men. But it did not command And it did not commend divorce. However, throughout Jewish history, rabbinical scholars had read that and interpreted it and broadened it. Such that men in the culture of Jesus' day were known to use Deuteronomy 24 to get out of just about any marriage they wanted for just about any reason they wanted. So now let's zoom into this conversation. 
because the Pharisees are defending an attitude of marriage that isn't so different from ours. This was their view. I will appeal to Moses by twisting his words to allow me to do what I want with my marriage when I want to, upon the grounds that I want to, and if I decide to dissolve it, I can be found faultless. Now, does that not sound strikingly similar? We are in a very different context to the day that Deuteronomy 24 is written, but you hear comments in our culture like this. I feel trapped in my marriage, so I left it. I got that right from one of the celebrity divorces that I looked up. Our marriage stopped working for either of us, another one of those celebrity divorces. I felt like I was losing touch with who I really was. That was actually told to me a few years ago when I was talking to someone about their divorce. And what do we call these divorces? We label them no fault, no moral judgments. Nobody did anything wrong. Just didn't work. See? It's faultless. You see the parallels. In his groundbreaking book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Professor Carl Truman points out that our modern culture is dominated right now by this belief that our inner psychological desires and sense of self are always authentic, always right, and should always be pursued in decisions, relationship, ethics, and institutions. No matter what outside barriers may exist, Truman, and I now quote him, calls this the psychological self. He says, this psychological self is our latest stage, latest stage of culture, and allowing us to claim that we are who we think we are and to repudiate all forms of external authority or constraint. Do you hear that? The Pharisees, though appealing to an authority, were actually twisting that authority to do exactly the same thing. And Jesus says to them, sorry, no. You don't get to do that. You don't get to make a marriage whatever you want. Jesus' response is, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Under the inspiration of God, Moses did not write this to command divorces. He did it to protect and restrict divorces and to restrict and protect the exploitation, particularly of women, in the process. But Moses wrote this because the world is filled with brokenness and sin. Because of your hardness of heart, the Greek word that Jesus uses there is sclerocardia, sclerosis of the cardia, of the heart, or maybe better translated, of the soul. Your soul, Jesus is saying, is so corroded that divorces are going to be necessary. And you've turned this allowing into a positive command and you've even broadened it as if Moses was affirming the goodness of it. What the scriptures wrote to contain and restrain evil, you've turned into a positive good. Implications for this first point. All of us, wherever you are in your journey of faith, ask yourself this question. Does this present view of marriage as an institution that basically exists to meet my individual needs and should be breakable as soon as I feel those needs are not being met? Is that really a sustainable or good view of marriage? Second question, and a deeper one. Is this whole business of trying to define what is good and right by simply looking inside and asking, what do I want and how do I feel? Is that really a good way to order society generally? 
You see, desires and feelings are not morally or ethically wrong per se, but they're also not omniscient or always wise or always lasting. We do not allow our desires and feelings to determine whether the rules of science should be changed. I do not get to deny gravity simply because since the age of four, I've loved flying and wished I was a bird. I do not spend all of my money and sell my house and take the proceeds to put a down payment on a vintage Ferrari F40 because I just happen to love Ferraris. Bad idea. I don't bankrupt my family for it. We align our feelings and desires with the realities and objective truth of what comes around us. Could it be? Could it be that this idea of the sovereignty of our desires and feelings what sociologist Albert Rafe called psychological man, what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the expressive individualism of our age, could it be that we need to challenge this, particularly in the way that we have defined institutions like marriage? Secondly, and this implications particularly for Christians, this is the current that our culture has created that we are all floating in right now. This easily dissolvable contract between two people as long as it works. That's the current. Are you just floating right along with it? Many of us right now are sitting here and you're waiting for me. Get into all the exceptions to marriage and the permutations. That's what's in your mind. That's what you're waiting for. That's the psychological noise. I know it. That's what I do too. I want want to create a theological discussion about when and where and how and all these things. We'll get to some of those in a few minutes. But I want you who are sitting here listening to me and waiting for that debate and all these finer points to come out, ask yourself this question. Am I subtly falling into the trap of the Pharisees? Looking for the wiggle room and the exceptions because I actually think that this is restrictive and not beautiful, what Jesus is talking about here. The exceptions which we're going to talk about don't make the rule. They're there because of sin, selfishness, stubbornness. They're not because people grow apart, but because people are apart from God and apart from their best natures when they're selfish, and that shouldn't rule. Robert Anderson said it very well. He said, in every marriage (laughs) that's more than a week old, you already have grounds for divorce. (laughs) The trick is to find and continue to find the grounds for marriage. You see? Put your eyes on the right place. And so I ask again, Christian, where are your eyes? Are we accidentally floating down the general drift of the culture because we see marriage as another one of those institutions that restricts our personal freedom? Marriage was never meant to be a contractual arrangement that helped you enhance your personal self-actualization as long as it works. That's not the way marriage was meant to be. That's what we've made of marriage. We made it then, and we're still making that of it now. But now let's look at our second point. Marriage as it was meant to be. Jesus picks up his thing after finishing and saying, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses said those things. He goes, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Here he's actually quoting Moses from Genesis chapter 2. And the two shall become one flesh. 
Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one, flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man or humanity separate. Now you hear what Jesus is doing here. He's quoting Moses from the creation account. Because in the Jewish mindset, the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, isn't so much a scientific historiography of the beginning of the universe, but a theological template for the very purposes for which we've been created and from which we have rebelled. And he says here, one of those purposes is that marriage is meant to be a beautiful unity. And marriage is meant to be an enduring or permanent reality. A beautiful unity, an enduring reality. Firstly, let's look at this beautiful unity. He, he firstly corrects the Pharisees in their twisted way of reading Scripture by saying, let's take the whole of God's declarations in Scripture as a whole. Let's go back to creation and see the original template purpose, the trajectory through which we need to understand Deuteronomy 24. And if you look there, God has made the male and female. Therefore, a man will leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is beautiful unity. Now, I know already there's psychological noise because we have just said God created the male and female, and the current of our culture wants to dispute that. Yes, it does. And this is what God says is the way it is. But let's not miss the beauty in the controversy. God made us to be totally and beautifully different, male and female. Diverse, yet to come together with all of our diversity to become a beautiful unity, a unified new creation. The gospel is not saying that these two people lose their individual identities. They remain two physically distinct people and two metaphysically distinct people. They are their own identity with their own soul, spirit, etc. But somehow, mysteriously, when they come together in marriage, they become one flesh. He uses the word for a body. It's like you suddenly have a limb that you didn't have, and that's the point. You're now part of one body, and the body isn't divisible. I can't just take this limb off like I can take off my coat. It's part of me. It's so integrally tied to me. It's me. Now think about that for a moment. I don't know if you've ever loved someone so much or admired someone so much that you wished you were them. Almost all of us have. I don't know if you've ever had such a crush on someone that you, you, your desire for them becomes borderline obsessive and you kind of want to possess them. I know I have. What I want to say is this. There remains in human beings a mysterious longing to be united with another. It's in us. And God says, actually, in marriage, I have provided a way for that to be beautiful and true. It may start out with all the desire and sexual chemistry that usually happen in, in the early days of attraction and chemistry. But over time, a deeper unity that's even more beautiful begins to arise. Because your spouse begins to know you. All of you. Not just the quirky parts. But over time, the really dark parts, the broken parts, the selfish parts, the cruel parts, the addictive parts. And as they begin to know you, 
perhaps for the first time in your life, you are really, really known with all your warts and grossness and still loved and still forgiven, still accepted. At the very deepest level, actually, you are known and being you. And you're loved by your spouse. And a deeper freedom begins to come over you. Because our deepest longing is actually not for sexual relief or self-actualization. Those are the things the culture presses into us. But your deepest desire, your deepest longing is to be known with all that you are and to be accepted, forgiven, and unconditionally treasured just as you are. You need to feel safe enough, but that takes time to be that loved, that well, that known, that unconditionally. You need to be forgiven repeatedly before you actually begin to feel safe enough, loved enough, secure enough to be who you are in front of them, naked and unashamed. The true beauty of then in marriage is the quenching of your deepest thirst. And that comes in relationship. It does not come, though, unless this beautiful unity is an enduring reality. So let's move on to the second part of God's design for marriage. Marriage as God meant it. Firstly, a beautiful unity, but secondly, a permanent reality. He finished his talking to the, to the Pharisees by saying, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then when the disciples query him more closely about the matter, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He, he hammers it home. You're committing adultery against God if you don't listen to what I'm saying and make this a permanent reality. God has a design for marriage. What God has joined together, we're not to separate. When two people marry their one flesh and individual, God says it's meant to last, to be enduring, not divisible. It's meant to be parted by death. If there are going to be reasons for se- to separate, God will grant those, as he did in Deuteronomy 24. And in other parallel passages to this one in the New Testament, Jesus does give one. He says, sexual immorality is one of those that so breaks the marriage covenant that if your partner does it, you are allowed to divorce. I'm not commanding it, but I'm allowing it. You're free to remarry. And... Paul goes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and expands on it and says, if your spouse, if you're married and you're a Christian and your spouse who's not a Christian abandons you, you are also free from the marriage obligation at that point. And almost every Christian church I know, by the way, includes in this idea of abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7, I know certainly our denomination does, includes in this idea the reality of abuse. If you're being abused... You need to know physical abuse has no place. Emotional abuse has no place in a Christian home, in fact, or in any marriage. If you're being abused, please contact us as soon as possible. Let us help you find a safe place to work through these issues. But you are not in a safe place. There are exceptions because of sin and brokenness meant to protect people. Absolutely. But here God's design for marriage. God created us to be able to 
live out this beautiful unity and this enduring reality until death do us part. He created everything. He created marriage to be good. He created it in perfect wisdom and holiness and infinite knowledge. He, doesn't, he didn't make a mistake when he made marriage. His design for marriage is better than ours. His purposes for marriage are more wise than ours. His design that it should be both a beautiful unity and an enduring reality is a far superior view than the current cultural current, sorry, that exists. Therefore, if you, especially if you are a Christian, you should paddle upstream of the current that we presently have. And I know you're feeling this tension because this is paddling directly against a very strong current in our culture. So now we have to confront our deepest beliefs. Actually, what Christian theologian James K.A. Smith argues are our deepest loves. What you do shows us what you love and actually what you believe. And what we love, what we have made our culture's deepest love is personal individual freedom, personal individual choice, personal individual self-actualization and authenticity. All we need to do is feel trapped in our marriage and we have cultural grounds, may I say, cultural demands for us to dissolve it, that we would become quote-unquote free. But as I've said, it won't make us free in the deepest sense. Barbara Defoe Whitehead, um, in her book, The Divorce Culture, says this, The notion of marriage as a union between two sovereign selves affirms virtues like independence, initiative, and self-reliance. Yet while attending to the virtues associated with the integrity of the individual, our contemporary discourse on marriage entirely neglects the virtues that are essential to the integrity of social bonds. Virtues like fidelity, kindness, forgiveness, modesty, gratitude, loyalty, patience, generosity, and selflessness. Do you hear her? Now I want to say one final thing. There is a beautiful unity and an enduring reality about marriage that this passage doesn't show, but Jesus is about to show in what he's about to do. The disciples by now still don't know this deepest truth, but Jesus is about to go to a cross and die. They know that. He has been drilling that into their heads. But it will take a former Pharisee turned Christian leader the Apostle Paul, to help us finally see the true beauty at the depth of this picture of marriage. Because in his chapter on marriage to the Ephesian church, Paul says these startling words about marriage. He said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that the church might be holy and without, blame, uh, without blemish. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. The husband who loves their, his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates their own flesh. But they nourish and cherish it as Christ loved the church. Because we're members of his body. Do you see the language? We're indivisibly now part of Christ's body. And then Paul says, a man therefore quotes Moses again, should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then Paul says, after quoting Moses, this mystery is profound, but I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that marriage, as God meant it, marriage 
points to Jesus and the work that Jesus does on the cross to prepare for himself and to capture for himself a spouse. You and me. We're his bride. The act of the cross is an act of marriage. Jesus is betrothing himself to us by taking away the things that will make us unfit to be his wife. And he takes them away by allowing himself to be nailed to a cross. The dirt and the sinfulness and the selfishness that would stop us from being able to have eternal communion and marriage with God, that uncleanness is taken away at the cross. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that we might become a fit marriage partner for him. Marriage points to the cross. Marriage points to Jesus. Marriage points to the ultimate marriage between God and humanity, that Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, came to pursue us and to accomplish By dying for us. You see, God set his love upon us from the beginning of time and before time. He determined that we would be his love and he would be ours. A forgiving love, a redeeming love, an enduring, infinite, unchanging love. As the book of Isaiah reveals, we are an obstinate, hard-hearted people. We keep wandering away from the love of our lives whom we were created to marry. And we commit adultery against God all the time, going our own way. Human history is the history of an adulterous humanity wandering from God and making our own way, independent of his loving arms. But the gospel is this, God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us when we were still sinners, dead in our sin, he sent Christ to make us alive. And what did Jesus say when he hung on the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken me. What's that the language of? That's the language of relational abandonment. May I push the envelope a little? That sounds like the language of divorce. Do you know how God decided to marry you? By sending his beloved into human form, and then to death on a cross, and on the cross, as it were, turning his back, abandoning him, divorcing him for a moment, that he might bring you into the wedding and the marriage with himself. There was no other way to deal with our sin but to send his beloved to betroth us to himself by, as it were, turning his back, abandoning divorcing his beloved, that we might become his beloved. Don't you see? Men and women, Christians don't treasure marriage because it helps us prop up some kind of outdated, traditional religious culture that makes us feel good. Marriage is beloved by Christians because it points in every age, to Jesus and what he did on the cross for every age. Marriage is beloved of Christians because it points to the fact that he came and betrothed himself to us by hanging on a cross. He didn't give us an engagement ring. He gave us his life. And he's coming back to claim his bride, that we can live with him in intimacy forever. The infinitely beautiful, forgiving, 
love of God that infinitely knows us, infinitely hates our sin, and yet unconditionally and infinitely forgives us. What better marriage is there? Applications. Firstly, if you're here and you are curious about Christianity, I want you to take a moment, as it were, park yourself on the beach. Take a look at the cultural current and the cultural narrative right now. If you go back into that current, where will it lead you? It will lead you to only ever seeing marriage as an outside institution that puts restrictions upon you, and you will find marriage wearying. You will. But if you see marriage as a human picture of a loving, pursuing, dying, rising Jesus for you, you will see it in a picture of a God who has loved you before the foundation of the earth, who knows everything about you, and even knowing your darkest stuff sends his son to die for you, to cleanse you, to prepare you to become his own bride. Now, not only will your view of marriage change, I bet your view of God will begin to change. Because God's not a concept to be evaluated, not a restrictive institution to constrain yourself under, but a lover who's been pursuing humans before the foundation of the earth. A forgiving but also a jealous lover who wants to betroth you to himself for all eternity and a a self-sacrificing lover who sent his son to die that you might become his bride. Do you really want to reject this kind of love from this kind of lover? Do you really want to spend eternity away from this kind of God? Come to him. Come to him. Now, if you're a Christian, I want to give some very specific applications. Firstly, to those of us who find ourselves drifting with the current and beginning to see marriage, not as the glorious picture of the gospel it is, I want you to immerse yourself in the glory of the gospel picture of marriage. It is a central picture of our understanding of the gospel. Reacquaint yourself. Read Ephesians 5 and see in the story of marriage, the story of the gospel. Now, if you're single, I want you to think this way for a moment. You may desire to be married, and that's a good thing. You can pursue that desire. But I also want you to realize, if you are a Christian, you have already been married in the deepest, most satisfying, most identity-transforming way to God himself through Jesus Christ. You have the marriage you were made for. You can pursue marriage as a picture to be lived out of mutual self-sacrifice. It's a good thing. But you don't need that to be complete. You already are in the deepest sense. Now, if you are married, treasure that marriage. Paddle upstream. Love your God through loving your spouse. Show the beauty of the gospel through your marriage. Reread it. Husbands, learn what it means to nourish and cherish. Read books about it. Read The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. There's lots of great books on what gospel marriages look like. Women, look what, find out what it means to respect and follow your husband. If you're, if you're experiencing conflict, get into counseling and get the conflict resolved. If you've got temptations, get into community. Put guardrails to protect this marriage. This marriage is a picture of the gospel. 
There's nothing wrong. When, when, when my child was young and began to walk, we put guardrails around all the stairs. We put, you know, in the sockets. They weren't restricted. Yes, they were restricting her, but they were restrictions of love so she could grow up and flourish. Put guardrails around your marriage. Talk to people if you're struggling. Get accountability. Get help. Finally, no, two more, sorry. If you've drifted with the current and bought into the current culture's view of marriage and, and found yourself divorced and you don't really have good grounds and you know it and you're filled with regret right now, I want you to know there's grace. There's hope for you. Come to us. Let us talk it through with you. There's a way for you to admit what you've done and find God's gracious forgiveness through the church is extending it to you. You don't have to carry this weight. Now, you need to know this is not no fault. Grace doesn't believe in no fault. It it, it believes in creating a safe place to admit fault and then being restored as you repent. Come and let us help you find that grace and that forgiveness. And finally, there are many of us who are married who are trying to paddle against the current, but you kind of feel like you're alone. You're the only guy in the boat. Reach out. You're not alone. The noise of the culture is loud, but the word of God is clear, and the church of God is there. Come to us. Let us help you. Let us provide you with resources. Let us start praying for you. Let us hold you accountable. Let us strengthen you to paddle well. And finally, this last part of these verses, give us some ways to paddle well. I I can't exegete all of this, but scholars think that Mark put this story of the children beside this story of marriage and teaching on marriage for a reason. And I think it's this. They brought children to Jesus that he might touch him, and, and the people were stopping them. The disciples were stopping the kids from coming, and Jesus was indignant. He rebukes them. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he grabbed the kids in his arms, and he blessed them. Now, these kids are kids under 13. They're Pideon. They're youngish kids. But Jesus says they're fit members for the kingdom. Why? Well, in that culture, they had a different view of kids than we do, but they had one thing really in common, and that's what Jesus is pointing out. They're dependent on their, on their parents. They understand to be utterly dependent on their parents to forgive them. And here, the analogy goes from a lover and a spouse to a father. God has adopted you in, as it were. He's not only married you, he's adopted you in, and he will provide. So Jesus says, come to me like a child, totally dependent. Trust me. If you're not yet a Christian, trust me. Ask me to come in and forgive you of your sin and to enter into communion. If you are a Christian, come to me independent and say, I can't fight this culture. The current is too strong. My spirit, who is within you, will empower you. Come to me, ask for my help, and I will grant it. You will feel my love, my bridegroom's love, my adopting love. It will begin to overwhelm you and thrill you, and power will rise up in that heart, and it will become soft. And in that love and in that power, empowered by the Holy Spirit, my spirit, you'll be able to paddle upstream and show the world the beauty of marriage, because the beauty of marriage 
is the beauty of me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. Help us now to swim and paddle upstream and help each other. For the tide of the current is diminishing marriage, but the glory of the gospel gives beauty and meaning and dignity to it in a way that is almost unimaginable. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as expected, I have a host of questions. So I'm, um, I'm going to answer just a couple, and then I will answer the rest uh, individually. Um, how strong should someone be in their faith before you date them and before you marry them? Okay, that's a dating seminar waiting to happen. Uh, there aren't, as you notice, there are no prescriptions uh, in the scriptures about that. It says, you know, if you're going to remarry in 1 Corinthians 7, do so in the Lord. Find a Christian to remarry. And so it doesn't say this level of strength, etc. So uh, the general thing I tell people, though, is it's not where they've arrived at, because that's not actually the gospel. The gospel is not a chart of your growth. It's where they're going. Are they going deeper into the grace of Jesus? Are they trying to move toward Jesus in love and humility and dependence like kids? If they're doing that, then they're good. All right. Pick another one here. How do we know we've married the right person under God's will? Or is there no right or wrong person as long as we put as God priority? Um, uh, I am Yoda, and I know exactly who everyone should marry. So just for for a slight fee, I'll be able to tell you. None of us know that. That is the question we all ask, and I don't have a good answer for you. Because the way people uh, have found themselves marrying are some, it's been years of getting to know each other. Others, it's like mine, it was love at first sight, and within an hour of talking to her, I was telling people. It's that level of spectrum. I can't really tell you. I would say seek the Lord. Put yourself in a position where you're seeking the Lord, where you're trusting Him, where you're looking for someone, a spouse who's godly. And look for godliness in the spouse that you're looking for. A heart for God. And that's about the best I can, I can give you. Um, there's, I'm sure there's a hundred of these on abuse, so I'll take one of them. Um, so, if, if you um, are being abused, it seems logical that you should be allowed to be divorced. But does it mean they cannot remarry? Um, because uh, marriage with God as our witness created a covenant. Yes, it did. But all of the exceptions that Jesus gives and that Paul gives assume that that covenant has been made, but they still give the right to divorce, and if properly, biblically, divorced under the exceptions given, the right to remarry attaches to it. And so if you see abuse as constructive abandonment as I do and as our denomination does, then you've been abandoned and the, the, the freedom to remarry from 1 Corinthians 7 attaches to you. There's a, well, there's like 13 more questions, and we don't have time for that, but thank you. I will answer these offline. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. Uh, It is clear that um, we desperately need to hear gospel teaching on marriage and divorce. I pray that you would help us to be a church that continues to equip people. I pray for Tarek as our pastor of family and youth, that you would help him to help families continue to stay strong in their marriages. I pray for all of the pastors and lay leaders to be encouragers of people who are married. I pray for the people who are married to reach out, to take seriously this call to have a marriage that glorifies you, to give it the time and the attention that it deserves, that we might be a witness 
that the, the, the world might see as a light in the darkness, people, as it were, paddling upstream and saying there's another way. Help us to be that kind of people in this kind of day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.